you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and then New Testament. We're going to be working towards the end of chapter 6 of John this morning, and so I hope that you've been encouraged through a lot of the time we've spent on this particular, what we call the Bread of Life sermon that Christ gave to those in Israel so many years ago. And so here, as we get down to the uh, final part of chapter 6, the title for this morning's message is, To Whom Shall We Go? To Whom Shall We Go? John chapter 6 We're going to look at verse 66 through the end of the chapter. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, as we consider this passage of Scripture and our time together this morning, we pray that you would continue to enlighten us, that you would instruct us through your word and by your spirit, God, that you would allow us to see the things in this text that you want us to see that you would bring conviction, that you would bring grace, that you would bring changed lives into this room through the preaching of your word this morning, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which officially began on October the 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. The Reformation was intended to reform the true gospel. The gospel had been deformed by the Roman Catholic Church, teaching that works must be done in order for one to be saved, and that you could even pay for indulgences in order to secure your place in heaven. And so Martin Luther and many of the other reformers needed to reform the gospel because it had been deformed to the gospel of grace. And the Roman Catholic Church was teaching and still teaches that false gospel, which really says Christ plus, Christ plus gets you to heaven, the the Roman Catholic Church would teach. It's Christ plus the sacraments. It's Christ plus your obedience. It's Christ plus the work of Mary. It's Christ plus purgatory that will enable you to eventually get to heaven. And the Reformers stood in solidarity on what has become known as the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura. It's scripture alone that we stand on. Sola Christus, it's Christ alone, not Christ plus anything. Sola gratia, grace alone, not your works, it's all grace. Sola fide, faith alone in the true gospel, and sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Well, the Reformation which began there in Germany quickly spread to Switzerland and then to all of Europe, And it was the English Reformation that has by far been the most gruesome part of the Reformation as many Christians gave their lives for the truth of the gospel. A total of 288 men and women were martyred between the years of 1555 and 1558. And these Christians were burned alive at the stake in the midst of the Reformation when Bloody Mary came to the throne. She was a staunch Roman Catholic and wanted to briskly undo all the progress that had been taking place there in England. Many of you 
may be familiar with some of the names of those first martyrs, Roland Taylor, John Hooper, Hugh Latimer, John Bradford, and Nicholas Ridley. One such martyr that I want to bring to your attention this morning is Lawrence Sanders. His story is recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs. On October the 15th, 1553, he preached at Northampton, warning the congregation that the errors of the popish religion would be restored to the church by Queen Mary, and that England was threatened with a visitation of God for her lukewarm indifference to the cause of Christ and the privileges of His glorious gospel. On October, uh, in October of 1554, he was arrested by the order of the Bishop of London after giving a sermon at All Hallows Bread Street. After three months of imprisonment, he was prosecuted in January of 1555 and convicted of heresy. He would would then be taken and burned at the stake on February the 8th, 1555. Before being chained to the stake, he kissed it, saying, Welcome the cross of Christ. Welcome the everlasting life. While Lawrence Sanders was in prison awaiting his death, he wrote letters to his dear wife. One such letter reads like this, remember God always, my dear wife, and so shall God's blessing light upon you and your Samuel, their child. Oh, remember always my words for Christ's sake. Be merry and grudge not against God and pray, pray, We be all merry here, thanks be unto our God, who is in his Christ, that hath given us great cause to be merry, by whom he hath prepared for us such a kingdom, and doth and will give unto us uh, some little taste thereof, even in this life, and to all such are desirous to take it. Blessed, saith our Christ, be they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for such shall be satisfied. He continues to write, let us go, yea, let us run to seek such treasure, and that with whole purpose of heart to cleave unto the Lord, to find such riches in his heavenly word through his spirit obtained by prayer. The spirit is ready, but the flesh is weak. When I look upon myself being astonished and confounded, what have I else to say but those words of Peter? Lord, Go from me, for I am a sinful man. But then I feel that sweet comfort. The word of the Lord is a lantern unto my feet and a light unto my paths. And this is my comfort in my trouble. Then wax I bold with the same Peter to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. This comfort have I when the giver thereof doth give it, close quote. I wanted to read that to you this morning because that's our text this morning, that this man, Lawrence Sanders, as he's preparing for his death, recites for us our text this morning of John chapter 6, verse 68, when Peter wrote, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sanders had no regrets. He had no debilitating fears. He had no animosity. He was not bitter. He was not confused. He was not in despair. Instead, we see him filled with comfort, with strength, and with resolve. 
And I wonder how you would respond if you were in the same circumstances, up against the end of your life, being threatened to be burned at the stake. He basically recited these words of Peter, where else would I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Day in and day out, you and I face different kinds of troubles. We've never been up against the stake to that degree, though we know that time could come. But in our daily, less intense situations, where do you go when you're troubled? Where do you go when you're afraid? Where do you go when your, your life is just not all that you thought it would be? Do you resort to the bottle? Do you resort to some other way to relieve your struggle? Or do you come to Christ who alone has the words of eternal life? And so this morning, as we look at this passage, I want to give you four penetrating questions, which will hopefully lead you to that same conclusion Peter had when he looked at Jesus and said, you have the words of eternal life. And so if you're taking notes this morning, you'll see these questions in your outline, the four headings really of our outline. Number one, why would you ever turn back? Why would you ever turn back? Verse 66, again, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, this here's a couple of reasons of why someone may turn back, because Jesus gives hard teaching. Jesus gives hard teaching. That's a reason why some people turn back. They can't really handle the teachings of Christ. And if you remember from last week, we looked at that word hard in the original language, the word scleros, which is where we get our medical term sclerosis. Sclerosis is a hardening of any body tissue, and it's particularly dangerous when you talk about arteriosclerosis or a hardening of the coronary arteries that provide blood to the heart. Last week, we talked about so many of us suffer from spiritual cardiovascular sclerosis, a hardening of the heart. And that's what's happening to these people as they're listening. Keep in mind, there's three different types of people listening to Jesus in John 6. There are the Jews. There are the disciples, which are those who are following him, but not all were truly following him. And then there's the 12. And even one of the 12 is a devil. And so as Jesus is addressing this message, many of these people start walking away. And we're asking ourselves in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back. And so we're asking the question, why? Why did many of his disciples turn back? The answer is because of Christ's hard teaching. It was difficult for them to believe what Jesus was saying because of what he says throughout chapter 6. The bread of life sermon starts off feeling pretty good. Like, hey, if you eat of this bread of life, of this bread, you can have eternal life. But then if you look at verses 53 through 56, we see Jesus extends that metaphor even further in a way that did not go well with his audience. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so the disciples, the fair-weather disciples that weren't really following Christ for the truth, but rather for what he would give to them, began to look at him with an odd peculiarity, thinking of him as maybe being cannibalistic because of the language Christ is using. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. But that's not what Christ is teaching at all. It's a metaphor. And it's the metaphor of the atonement. And what Christ is saying is that I must give my body, my flesh, and my blood, and in order for you to be born again, you have to see that, understand that, identify with that, and that has to dominate all of who you are. It's coming to all of who I am. Look how he continues in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now notice how verse 56 is in the present tense when he says, whoever feeds on my flesh. Salvation is a point in time when the repentant sinner turns from their sins and turns to Christ, all by grace, through faith in Christ alone. But a true Christian will continue to feed and continue to drink the flesh and the blood of Christ as a way of sustaining a lifetime of abiding in Christ. What we're talking about is the same gospel that saves you, is the same gospel that sanctifies you as day in and day out you stay tapped to the vine. It's what Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches, he that remains in me, he who abides in me, and I in him shall bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do what? Absolutely nothing. So the idea is it's a continual abiding. It's you're abiding in Christ, and he's abiding in you. You've committed your life to him. He's committed himself to you. And that bond can never be broken. And when someone's truly born again by the blood and the body of Christ, they will always stay true to him. That doesn't mean perfectly without some uh, difficulty of life and sin from time to time or even daily for that matter. But the idea is that no one ever totally walks away with a wholesale different direction altogether saying, I can't deal with this anymore. And that's what's happening to some of these disciples. They're just walking away because Jesus is a hardcore teacher. He doesn't sugarcoat the message. This isn't Joel Osteen here. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who's pleading with people for saving grace. And it wasn't necessarily something they wanted to hear. He doesn't try to attract people with glamour and keep them following him because of his jokes. He doesn't try to attract people with gimmicks, and when they come, he doesn't play games with them. Jesus Christ is the prince of preachers, not Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The Lord Jesus Christ was masterful. He was perfect. He never says too much and he never said too little. Jesus always gets the text right. He always captures the authorial intent. He always addresses the heart issue. And the heart issue with these disciples is they didn't want Christ. And he confronts this hypocritical unbelief of the Pharisees throughout the New Testament Gospels. In Matthew chapter 23, there are all the, the woe um, addresses that Jesus gives to the scribes and Pharisees, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, and he repeats that over and over and over, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence, and so he exposes them time and time again in so many different ways in that Matthew 23 passage, and you know, people today say, well, you shouldn't call out other people in your sermons. You shouldn't talk about other people. You should be nice to everybody. Well, listen, Jesus shows us time and time again the appropriate way to approach self-righteous unbelievers. And the best way to do that is by preaching the truth and exposing error. The best way to love the church is to uphold that which is right and to condemn that which is wrong. The best way to love the church is not by apologizing for the truth or for the grace that's offered through the Word of God, but rather by exalting Christ in His rightful position as the head of the church. And oftentimes, a strong leader like Jesus will pull away and pull in His real disciples to make sure we can regather here and regroup who's with me and who's not with me. 
because if you're not with me, you're with the, your father, the devil. That's what he says, talking about hard teaching of Jesus. That's what he says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's looking at these Jews. He's looking at those who walk away from him, and he says, you're of your father, the devil. That's hard teaching. That's not pleasant to hear. And yet it's the love of our God to proclaim with great clarity what's going on. Simply put, some people turn back because of the hard teaching of Jesus. Christ's teaching is like a sharp knife. Christ's teaching cuts and it divides. His teaching has a razor-sharp edge. Only the words of Christ can fix a stone-cold heart and make it alive and wealth again. And that doesn't come with a dull knife. That comes with a sharp knife. And if you want your heart changed, and if you want to be regenerated, and if you want to bleed for Jesus instead of for all the things of this world, then his teaching, Christ's teaching, must penetrate into your heart. And oh, by the way, it's only hard for those who reject. It's only those who reject him who say that's a hard teaching. Those who stay understand this is a beautiful teaching. The fact that you're going to give your life for me and that you're going to atone for my sins, that's not hard teaching, that's grace. And that's something that as a Christian you look on and say, what a beautiful thing to see what Christ offers. And yet we have to also understand your next blank says, basically some people go away because they would have to believe in all of Jesus. People don't want to believe in all of Jesus. They want to believe in part of Jesus. So they like the part of Jesus that sounds fun and fluffy and loving. God is love and Jesus is love. They, that's, that's a true uh, statement that, that we can rejoice and glory in, but when Christ gets to that sharp edge, that's when people are like, I don't know about that. And for these particular disciples that were following him, they had all kinds of issues with what Jesus was teaching. Jesus taught in his divinity in John 10, 30, when he said, I and the Father are one. They couldn't bear it. In fact, the next verse says they picked up stones to stone him, because that was a hard teaching for them to accept the fact that Messiah was a man who was fully God and also fully man. Jesus also taught his own exclusivity in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. People love to talk about Jesus until you talk about his exclusivity, and then they want to reject that Jesus because he seems too narrow. Jesus taught that he was Lord over the Sabbath. The Jews loved their Sabbath. It had become idolatry for them to elevate the Sabbath over Christ. And when Christ came and said the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, they couldn't handle it. Jesus taught that he was greater than Abraham, that he was greater than Moses. The book of Hebrews goes on and on to talk about he's greater than angels. He's greater because Jesus is God. And so what's happening here is that people don't want to accept all of that. They want to accept just little parts and parcels of Jesus that sounds good and agrees with their own theology. And so let me ask you this morning, if you're following Jesus, are you following all of him, all of his word, all of the New Testament? all of the Gospels, all that Christ is, or do you pick and choose what you like, and as soon as something is said from the Scripture that you don't like, you walk away. That's what happened to these disciples. They literally walk away from Christ. And so with that, with that in mind, the ultimate reason would be your next blank. Why? Did they walk away? It's hard teaching. They don't want to accept all of Christ. Third, because they were never regenerated. The ultimate reason of why they walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ is they were never saved. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if, if they had been of us, in other words, if they had been genuinely born again, if they were true disciples, they would never walk away. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
True disciples continue for a lifetime with Christ. True disciples will follow Jesus all of their days. True disciples follow Christ in the good and in the difficult. True disciples never deny their Lord. Ultimately, I know Peter denied him, but he came right back. I'm talking about a continual denial and a continual walking away. Because if you're part of him, you don't, you don't abandon him. But those who go out from him, it's now plain that they were not part of us, is what is written in 1 John 2.19. And so if somebody ultimately walks away, the real answer to why is because they were never saved. You can change your preference of a certain order at your favorite restaurant. You can change the team you cheer for. You can change the destination of your dream vacation. You can change the model and make of the car you drive. You can change jobs, the place you live, or even churches. Okay, you shouldn't change churches. Right. If you're at this church, you should just stay here. But, but you cannot change your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you can't just one day say, I'm a follower of Him, and the next day you're not. If you are, you're all in, and if you're not, you're not. And so here the line is being demarcated by the words of Christ, and many of these so-called disciples, they walk away, and they walk away from Christ. And when you're walking away from Him, you're showing that you were never truly born again. What's happening in the hearts of those who walked away is they were never really consumed with a passion for Christ. They were faking it. They were never like really on the inside. You know, it's kind of like you go to a movie or something and you leave the movie and you're like, well, what did you think? No, no, what did you really think? Or you spend some time with people. Hey, what do you think about what he said? No, what did you really think? The, these people, they didn't really, you know, hey, what do you think about what Jesus is saying? Are you a follower? Yeah, I'm a follower. No, no, no. What did you really think about what he said? Well, I think it's a little extreme, don't you? That Jesus would say that it's got to be through him and that he's, you know, on par with God and have, I can't believe that. So these people apparently didn't really believe. They, they, they weren't really consumed with the glory of Christ. They, 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 they weren't radically transformed. They were just on the outside following him. And so Jesus, as he cuts it straight here at the end of John 6, draws the line in the sand and many of these people walk away. So let's look at the second question this morning. Do you want to go away? Do you want to go away? That's what he infers here in verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, so you have, remember the Jews, they're already gone. Now you have the disciples, and half of them are hanging around, and half of them are walking away. So he looks at the 12, thinking, now well, here's the smallest circle of my audience. So I'm going to look at them and ask them this question, do you want to go away as well? Maybe your issue is you just don't want Christ enough. You want something else more. This is the word for the will. It's the word for your desire. It's the word for your motivation. This is what you really want. And if you had been saved by God's grace, then you want more and more of the Son of God in your life. And if you don't want Him, it means that you want something else. And so when Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? He's asking the twelve this question with all sincerity. Now, keep in mind that Jesus already knows the answer to the question that he's asking. So anytime in the New Testament when Jesus asks a question, he's not looking for information. Right? He, he, he knows all things. So he's not curious to know because he needs to know. He's giving the person that he's asking the question to an opportunity to answer that question so maybe they can see where they really are. So he's giving these disciples an opportunity to frame up their response, and by their response, they're going to kind of give the proof of where they really are. 
Jesus knows this answer, but he asked them this question anyway. In fact, the, the question, the way it's worded in the original language, I think another good translation could be read like this. Surely you don't want to go away too, do you? That's kind of the, 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 the gist of how the, the feeling goes of this particular question, looking at the grammar and the syntax. Surely you don't want to go away too, do you? In many ways, Jesus is asking the question in a way that will contrast the defection of the false disciples with the devotion of the true disciples. And in fact, he's given them an opportunity to respond positively, which we'll see Peter respond positively. And he's given them that opportunity just to show what is it that you really want? Do you really want the world or do you really want to follow me? What is it that you really want? And that's a great question we could ask ourselves today. What is it that you want? Because we tend to do what we want, right? We talk about, you know, how are you doing with your quiet time? You know, it's a great question. How's your time in the word and prayer? Oh, I'm so busy, so busy, don't have time. No, why don't you just be truthful and say, you know, what? I don't want to make time to read the Bible today, right? That's what it really boils down to because you don't skip things you want to do. Like most of us don't skip eating three meals a day and then snacking a lot this time of year, right? Why? Because we want to. We want to. So we're going to do that. So you do what you want to do. And so Christ is getting down to the will. What is it that you want? Do you want to go or do you want to stay? It's a great question we can ask ourselves that same question. What are some reasons, by the way, that false uh, disciples might go away? What are some reasons that they might go away? Well, how about these questions? Your next blank. Are you in love with this present world? Are you in love with the world? First John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's basically saying in this passage, what is it that you want? Do you want the Father and the love of the Father that is shown through the Son? Or do you want the world? What, what is it that you want? And somebody who we thought through New Testament history that wanted the love of the Father showed that he wanted the love of the world, and his name was Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10, that reference is listed for you there, but it just says, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So in other words, there's a, a real-life example of somebody, Demas, who was hanging out with Paul, part of his entourage, trying to do the work of the ministry, who evidently, when push came to shove, showed his true colors, and because he was in love with the world, he walked away. He, he deserted. He, he walked away. He was a fair-weather disciple, just like these disciples who go away. And you know what? Sometimes we can understand that when you live for the world. It seems easier. I mean, the world will let you do whatever you want. The world will not judge you. The world will not correct you. The world will not confront you. It's do whatever you want, and everybody pats you on the back and say, well, isn't that great for you? But we've got to ask this question this morning. What is it that you want? Do you want the world? Because the world could be divided into three categories, the flesh and the world, uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Let's talk about those in these next three subpoints. Are you in love with power? Are you in love with power? There was a, a guy who loved power in 3 John, and his name was Diotrephes. And Diotrephes is written about in 3 John, verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So they had a problem in the church, and the problem in the church is instead of them having a, a unity of elders that were leading that church and guiding that church to be humble and pursuing Christ and His glory, there's one guy on the elder team. 
name is Diotrephes. And what does the Bible say about him? He liked to put himself first. He didn't like to acknowledge the authority of the apostles. So if I come, 3 John verse 10, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense about us. So this man is defaming the apostles. He's talking wicked nonsense about John. And he's not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who, want to, who he wants to and puts them out of the church. This guy had declared himself a self-appointed pope who's kicking people out of the church without the apostles' consent. Diotrephes. This guy wanted power. He was an evil man. Now, you may be here this morning and be like, man, I would never be that bold and that brash to try to take a church and try to drive out people by being like this guy. Maybe your style is a little more subtle. Maybe you're not so much like Diotrephes. You prefer the strategy of Absalom, David's son, who would sit out by the gate and say, oh, oh, that I were the judge in the land and every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. I would give him justice. You could easily be thinking, oh, if I was the pastor of this church. Oh, if I was only an elder, I would never let that happen. Not under my watch. No, no. Oh, if only I was in charge of the music ministry. Everyone would love it. Oh, only if I was the children's ministry director, what a program we would have. But I'm not because they haven't asked me. But if I were, what a great place this would be, right? That's how people, it, it comes through the back door, right? People, we struggle with wanting to be in control, do we not? God places the pastors and elders of any local church by his providence, in his sovereignty, to under Christ lead and govern that church. And a smart elder board will seek your input. But at the end of the day, you can't be seeking power beyond what God has given to you in a marriage, at a church, at work, in any such way. And yet that's a way that we're worldly. We want to be in charge. And so many times we're in a position of humility where we should be obeying the authorities over us and coming under them. And yet we want to instead attack them. That's what I'm talking about, a struggle with power. Or how about this? Your next blank there says, or how about money? Are you in love with money? Remember, it's not, it's not, money's not the sin, it's the, it's the love of money, right? First Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. So here we see they're picking money over faith and they pierce themselves with many pangs. They thought it would be so wonderful if I just had a lot of money, I wouldn't have any more problems. And yet these pangs are suffering or misery or mental distress the love of money as well. You might be here and say, I'm not a money monster. You know, that's not me. I'm not after money. That's, that's just greedy people like, you know, Uncle Scrooge. I'm not like that. Well, let me ask you a few questions. Remember, because sometimes it's more subtle how you can discern whether or not you love money. Maybe you could ask yourself these three questions. How's your credit card debt? It's got real quiet <laughs> real quick. Didn't it? You judgmental preacher. Now, let me say how, how is your credit card debt? I'm just asking, how's it, how is it? Because credit card debt can communicate a consumerism mentality in the land that we live that you become a slave to the lender for things that are not ne necessary in your life. Now, I get it. We all use credit cards. Hopefully, you pay them off every month, and you, that might be the tool that you use. 
There may be true emergencies in your family that happen and you have to put something on the credit card and you pay it off as soon as you can. I get that. There's a, there's a grace that can be used appropriately. What I'm talking about is the abuse of the credit card where you want something you can't afford, but you put it on the credit card anyway again and again and again, and you heap up so much debt that you can't hardly live, and you're saying, but I don't love money, and I'm just trying to help you see that maybe you do. Maybe you love money, and it's controlling you. Let me ask you a second question, because I know you don't like that one. How, how, how is your savings account? Do you have a savings account? Because it would be wise and honoring I think, to at least pursue that idea so that you can help provide for yourself. I'm thinking about all the proverbs of the ant who's a hard worker instead of a sluggard and he's storing away for an emergency for yourself or someone else. How's that going? Third, how about, a, uh, how about your giving? Is there a lack of generous giving to Christ? Or could you say that you honestly give regularly, joyfully, mind you, and sacrificially. And if you're not able to say, you know what, yeah, it's a, it's a sacrifice, because it may be that you're not sacrificing. And you're saying, well, I don't love money, but if you have a huge credit card debt that's based on consumerism, if you have zero savings and never have, never will, and if you're not giving generously to the church, I'm telling you, you have a problem with money, and you love it, and you need to ask God to help you. And He, forget, he gives grace, and we actually do counseling at our church on budgets. If that's something you want to talk about, we have people we can point you to who will do a wonderful job helping your finances fall into line. I feel like you guys don't like me right now, so let me move on to the next, the next point is this one. How about this, all right? Are you in love with sexual immorality? Are you in love with sexual immorality? 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Let me just pause right there for a moment. So we say, hey, don't be deceived. There's a lot of people who say, I love Christ and I'm a Christian, but they're living a sexually immoral lifestyle. And he says, for that person, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That person is not a Christian. Why? Because they like their sensuality more than they like the Savior. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, neither the sexually immoral, there's more, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. No, I'm not picking on a certain son. I'm just saying there's a whole list. No thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But I can tell you this, in my short time as a pastor, I have seen more people walk away from Christ because of sexual sin than anything else. And second place isn't even close. I've seen people walk away from the faith, walk away from the church. You say, Adam, what, what are you talking about? I'm talking about pursuing divorce without biblical grounds. I'm talking about sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. I'm talking about practicing homosexuality or any heterosexuality outside of marriage to the point where people say, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the church says. I'm going to live my life, and everybody struggles with it. Can't we have a little grace? And my answer would be like, you can have a lot of grace, but if you're walking with Christ, you're going to be a disciple of His, and you're not going to love the world so much that it continually keeps you in the throes of being disobedient to our Savior. If you love Christ and you're a disciple of His, you will regularly 
and continually repent and renounce the wickedness of our heart. Now, you may be here and say, Adam, are you saying you don't struggle with those things? I struggle with all those things. <gasps> and so do you, right? I'm, not, I'm saying that this both is true for the Christian who's going through an ongoing battle, but I'll tell you this, for the Christian, they're deep down want to, wants to follow Christ, and they hate their sin and they confess it regularly, and they ask God for grace every morning when you get up to say, God, help me today to fight the fight of faith. I don't want to give in to any of this. But somebody who's not a true disciple is like, eh, I don't care. Everybody struggles, just part of life, and they're not really in. And so where are they going? They're going away from Christ. Why are they going away from Christ? Because they don't want Christ. They want the world. Don't you see it? So many of these people who are following Christ, they don't really want Him. They want what their world has to offer. One last question. We won't finish the very end, but let me go through one more. To whom would you go? To whom would you go is the next question, because verse 68 and 69 sets it up for us. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? What a great question, right? Jesus is like, are you going to go away too, or are you staying with me? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Are you going to follow a false teacher? Next blank. Are you going to follow a false teacher? If you're not going to follow Christ, then who are you going to follow? Is it like, is there some other teaching out there that's better for your soul and more satisfying for your life? The Bible is full of warnings against false teachers. Listen to 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. Many, many will follow them, and because of the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. And so Peter basically is pointing to Jesus and saying, Jesus, where else are we going to go? Because if we're not following you, it means we're going to follow one of these false teachers that's addressed again in 1 Timothy 4 that talks about in the later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, and through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So basically what we're saying, if you're not following Christ, then what's your option? You're following a false teacher. You're following someone else. You're not following Jesus. You're following someone else. And his expository thoughts on John, J.C. Ryle writes this, quote, but the question with which Peter begins is just as remarkable as his confession, to whom shall we go? said the noble-hearted apostle. Whom shall we follow? To what teacher shall we betake ourselves? Where shall we find any guide to heaven to compare with thee? What shall we gain by forsaking thee? What scribe, what Pharisee, what Sadducee, what priest, what rabbi can show us such words of eternal life as thou showest? In other words, where else are you going to go? Have you found a better teacher than Jesus? Have you found someone else? It's so true. Jesus has shown us from creation to the cross that he loves us. Jesus has identified with us through the incarnation. He has suffered with us through every temptation. And he has died for us that we might be born again. Why would you turn away? No other teacher would ever say, 
believe in me. This is what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching, believe in me. Other teachers say, believe in this. Do it this way. Do certain works and maybe you can be saved. The Pope teaches the sacraments. Mohammed taught the five pillars of the Muslim faith from the Quran. Buddhists teach that you've got to walk on the enlightened eightfold path. Joseph Smith taught the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge from the Book of Mormon. Jehovah Witnesses teach that you've got to pass out a lot of Watchtower magazines. Scientology teaches in the story of Zinyu, a tyrant who rules the galactic confederacy. Ellen G. White taught the legalism of Sabbatarianism as the doctrine of first importance. David Koresh taught that you have to drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink it. Don't follow any of them. Don't, don't believe in a person. Believe in Christ. Believe in Him. The list goes on and on and on. And of course, today, obviously, more popular than that is to be a nun. And I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, an N-O-N-E, kind of the new category of atheist. I'm a nun. I don't believe in anything. And, and, and to the nun, I would say, the person who says, I don't believe in anything, because organized religion, if you haven't heard, is on a downslide. Okay. So people now just believe whatever, they just believe whatever they want. It's called secular humanism. You, you can just do whatever you want. I don't identify with any organized religion. I can do my own thing. Well, if that's you this morning, then you're your own false teacher. You are. You're leading yourself against Christ to your own um, rendition of whatever you think life is about. So that leads to the next blank, and we'll stop with this one. Are you going to follow a false Jesus? Maybe you're not following a false teacher per se, but you don't really have the proper Jesus of the Bible in your crosshairs when you say you're following Christ. It's, it's getting into more of saying something like, well, my Jesus would never do that. Or to me, Jesus says, no, no, it doesn't matter what, who your Jesus is or to what, what you think. Jesus says what he says, and we have to deal with the Jesus of the Bible, not the one of your own making, which is why kind of similar to this passage is Peter's confession of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, no, 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 who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And just like in this passage, when he says, you are the Holy One, of God. It's this understanding that Peter had been given by the sovereign grace of God to understand who he was and what he was here for. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so if you're not following him, you're either following a false teacher or you're following a false Jesus, one of your own making. Which leads us to our last question. This is where we'll pick up next week. Is one of you a devil? Is one of you a devil? Because our last couple of verses here talk about Jesus said to them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Question, why did Jesus even choose Judas? Why? Why did Jesus, who knows all things and knows what's within a man, remember the Jews walked away, half these disciples are now walking away, the 12 are staying, but not all 12, only 11, because even one of them is a devil. Why did Jesus choose Judas? I'll give you the answer next week, all right? Come back next week, we'll pick up right here. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning and look at your word, the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, 
And I pray, God, as we contemplate all that we've looked at, it is a hard teaching for an unbeliever. It's grace for the believer. For the believer, we do struggle with temptation, the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the boastful pride of life, but deep down, we want you. We want you in our life, Lord. We pray that you would increase our desire for Christ that would be so great that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, I pray that you would be with that unbeliever that's here today. Maybe they would see the line drawn in the sand by Jesus Christ himself. What do you want, the world or Christ? And if you want Christ, are you willing to accept all of Christ? Pray for the Christian here this morning, God, that we would also be sobered by the reality that so many claim Christ with their outer lips, but their hearts are far from you. And that today, God, you would draw those that are yours close to yourself. Give us greater resolve. Give us us greater passion. Give us a greater want, desire, motivation to do what we do for your glory as those who've been transformed by your glorious grace. I pray, God, that you would move in our midst. We consider these things as we even anticipate next week together that question of why Jesus would even choose Judas. Pray, God, that you would use your word to change us and to make us devoted disciples all of our days. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.